I will be reading from Mark chapter 9 this morning, verses 42 to 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your word. We thank that you thankful that you are just and you are righteous. And you are merciful. Enable me to communicate uh, this deep and sobering truth to your people. We pray that you'll bring the dead to life and sanctify your dear saints, by way of this truth, is your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. Radical surgery is required. Those are not the words uh, that you want to hear from your doctor in a routine visit, routine checkup. And after your blood work is done, he says, radical surgery is required. Yet sometimes um, things must be removed um, if we're to go on living, speaking physically. For instance, uh, a, a cancerous mass requires a radical response. It must be swiftly attacked or it will take over. War veterans who've um, suffered um, severe, unrepairable injury to a limb um, require amputation or, or gain green will take over. Radical measures sometimes must be taken so as to preserve life. Um, our text here speaks of, of radical spiritual surgery. Radical spiritual surgery, unnecessary for anyone who's a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it is, as I said, a very solemn section of Scripture. It's full of graphic terminology. Uh, we see here severe warnings, violent threats, and dramatic actions. All within those short verses. Jesus speaks of hell. He speaks of unquenchable fire. And repentance. Now, most people, um, even those who haven't studied the Bible, um, probably have some familiarity with this passage. But yet, when you hear it read aloud, um, the words of Christ sound rather shocking. So we, 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 we hear just how extreme... Some of his language is having to do, by the way, with the extent of discipleship. 
That is, if we're going to follow Christ, uh, we must do so rigorously. That's what's in view. I mean, all things considered, um, there are no half disciples. He calls us to follow him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, He calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This section here um, is really the missing message of the majority of the evangelical church today. Because no gospel truth has been more compromised, been more watered down, more neglected than the gospel truth of repentance. That's why we don't skip it. This section that we're in um, is actually the conclusion um, of a private teaching session of the 12. Jesus is the teacher. And all these lessons, they can be appreciated on their own terms, um, looking at them individually as we have over the past few weeks. Um, they're, they're strung together like, like pearls on a necklace, and the strand that we happen to be looking at this morning um, has to do with warning and judgment. Very sobering words, no doubt. But Jesus here uses exaggeration. He uses hyperbole here. Um, perhaps it may even sound offensive to your ears here this morning. I mean, many people, when they hear this, they'll say, how can these words come out of the loving lips, or the loving mouth of Jesus? Have you heard that before? You know, oftentimes our culture thinks of Jesus as some kind of um, um, Buddha-like Galilean hippie. In in, an ethical teacher light. Who never considers or, or discusses judgment. How many times have you heard Jesus doesn't judge? Correction, as I said a thousand times, he is the judge. Jesus says, my father judges no one. All judgment has been delegated to me. Why? Because he's the one that came to earth to be judged in our place. He took hell upon himself, so you need not go there. That being said, Jesus is not mincing words at all. Now, Jesus has been teaching the 12, we read in Scripture, plainly. That is, he's been teaching them plainly that that he's come to give up his life for others. He's come to be the least, and he's come to be the last, and he's the creator of all. The Son of Man must, he said, be delivered in the hands of evil men. He must suffer, he must die, and he must rise on the third day. The must is because the Old Testament said so. And while Jesus was telling them how he was going to allow himself to be the least, remember Jesus said, no man takes my life. I give my life up. I have the power to give it up. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. As he was teaching them about leastness and lastness, they were arguing about which one of them were the greatest. 
This is so me and you. Yeah, thank you. Don't, don't look down on the 12. You are the 12, so to speak. We are. So the, the, their pecking order argument came about, remember, on the heels of the great transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, transfigured from flesh to glory. And who was there with him? Moses and Elijah as witnesses that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the king of the kingdom. Now, they realize he's the king of the new kingdom. They understand the kingdom as a reality. But they completely misunderstand the kingdom as an identity. They're gripped by the thought of an earthly, physical kingdom that is reconstituted, reconstructed, reestablished Judaism with a throne and an army and a physical, earthly kingdom. They want to be numero uno. They want to be the greatest. They don't understand kingdom reality yet. They do want to be great. Now, there's nothing wrong with greatness. Amen? There's nothing wrong with greatness. Nothing at all. The problem is how we conceive it. Okay, we, we know that Almighty God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He, he, he chooses the weak to shame the strong. I mean... The 12, this is a motley crew. He exemplified that reality. And this is certainly true of us. You see, we enter his kingdom not because we're great, but because our need is great. And we serve, therefore, gratefully. Now, having just said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. He says, you want to be greatest in the kingdom? That's fine. But this this is how you become the greatest. You become the least of all. You become the last of all. You become willing to serve the least of these. So Jesus, as an illustration, remember, they're in the house of Capernaum. The 12 are there. This is not the masses to whom he's addressing. He's, He's addressing the 12. He picks up a little boy in his arms. And he uses that little child as an illustration. And he sets this little boy down in the midst of this motley crew. And he says, whoever receives one child in my name, he receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, children in Jesus' day had no status whatsoever. So if your motivation is to be paid back for what you do, a child can't pay you back. So he picks up this child. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom? Then you serve someone who's least. That's how you become great. Okay, that was one lesson. Another lesson came on the heels of something that struck. When when, when John heard that, he remembered something. And he said, Lord, you know, uh, there was this guy... And um, he was casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. 
Jesus said, don't do that. Don't prevent him. So as a result of their pretended superiority and the rejection of that man's ministry, they were actually preventing that man from serving Christ because Jesus goes on to say, look, if you even give someone a cup of water because you're mine, you're serving me. So as insignificant as one may appear within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, their service for Christ is no way insignificant. Because you're serving him. That is if your motivation is to serve him. So notice what we see here or in that account that we looked at last Lord's Day, that God is more concerned for a little one's fragile faith. And when he uses this child and he speaks of children here, he's not referring specifically to children, but he uses the child as an illustration of of, of a young, fragile believer. And here, this little one's fragile faith, the Lord is more concerned with that than he is a great one's fragile ego, i.e. John and the other 11. Because notice now, he turns and does something that we would in no way expect. Okay, after that, he goes on now, and he, he threatens believers with dire judgment. If they cause one of these little ones of mine who believe on me to stumble. That's heavy. That's where we're at. And there's two things for us to notice this morning. The first, the peril of causing a fellow believer to stumble. And then secondly, uh, the er eternal danger um, of pampering our sin. Those are the two things that are in view um, in in the text that was just read. Notice verse 42. Whoever, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's a little one in the kingdom. You can include the children in this, but again... He's pointing out a believer. We're all little ones, in other words, really. But this has to do with the fragile young faith, I believe, of, of, of a newer believer. Those, those who are insignificant in the kingdom, that's another way to see this. That is in the world's eyes anyway. I'm insignificant in the kingdom. In the world's eyes. We are. So first, let us be sure we understand the connection of his saying. We go back to verse 37 and verse 41. Notice verse 37. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Verse 41. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Notice in those two verses, Jesus takes very personally the way believers are treated. 
takes it very personally. Now, both those expressions, verse 37 and verse 41, um, are, are the positive side of that truth. That's the positive side. That welcoming and, and serving them, those who are in Christ, is to welcome and serve Christ himself. Okay, that's the positive side. Verse 42 is the negative side of the same truth. Whoever causes one of these to stumble, it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck. Look, if you're a parent of children, you understand this. You get this. This is an instinct. This shows up in the animal world. Go, go mess with the cubs of a mama bear and see what happens to you. As a matter of fact, when um, Absalom was receiving a very poor um, counsel from Ahithophel, you know, uh, Absalom was, 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 was working to overtake his father's kingdom, and Ahithophel, uh, who betrayed David, he goes on, he gives him really poor counsel, and um, this one guy comes up, um, Hushai, and he says this, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged. You know what they're like? They are like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. To highlight the instinct of protecting your little ones. So this kind of concern and protection is exhibited not only in the animal kingdom, it's exhibited within families. If you're a mother or a father of children, you lay your mitts on my children, you will deal with me. Dads, amen. How much more so with Almighty God? He takes the treatment of his own very personally. You remember in Acts 9? When, when Saul, who's the Apostle Paul, was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, he's met by the risen Lord. He sees the glory of God. He's blinded for three days. What did Jesus say to him? He did not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Zechariah 2.8, from which I read earlier this morning. He who touches you, says the Lord, touches the apple of his eye. Hey, that's anthropomorphic language. It's human language speaking to us in a way we can grasp something of God who doesn't have an eye. But you touch one of his, it's like poking him in the eye. So here in our text, Jesus uses very graphic language uh, to convey the same truth, whoever. So let's start with the whoever first. Now, naturally, in, in the parallel account of this text, in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about the world and its temptations. He says this, Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, the unbelieving world will tempt God's people. You know, I, I think of a, of a young Christian man who works in the business world, who, who has to travel around the United States, and he's out with his fellow businessmen, and those fellow unbelieving businessmen tried to press him and prod him in, into carousing with them. 
they poke and they press and they tempt him to, to go where he need not go and he should not go. That's one way the world will tempt. Another way is for fellow co-workers, perhaps. They know you're a Christian and they want you to get, get you to mark the books or, or lie to the boss, whatever. Believers experience this in the world. Another way is, is to hinder the blossoming faith of a spouse or a child. Let's say there's a husband at home and he's an unbeliever and you have blossoming faith in a wife or in a child and they want to press it down. They want to hold them back. They want to forbid them to go to church or a Bible study, whatever. Whoa. To them. You know, I think of Herodias. Abusing power is another way. Remember Herodias, the wife of Herod, the one John the Baptist is calling out? She used her daughter to dance lustfully in front of Herod to get what she wanted, and it was John the Baptist's head on a platter. Whoa. Whoa to the world for temptations. Okay, that aside, um, Jesus is not addressing the world. He's addressing the 12. Okay, they're still in the house. The house in Capernaum, verse 33, he says to them, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. The, the word for sin is, to, is the word um, which means to cause to stumble. The verb comes from the noun scandalon. You can hear the word scandal in it. Beware. Now, originally, it's the idea of a baited stick. A baited stick that would hold up a trap. It draws in its prey. The animal uh, uh, rubs up against the stick. The trap falls. You're caught. That's the idea. And it carries with it anything that would be, be, be a stumbling block, that would cause an obstacle, that would obstruct one's path. That's the idea. It, 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 and, it, and it results in causing one to stumble or fall morally. It would be better, Jesus said, better, it would be better for him, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This isn't the little millstone that mama has in her kitchen, domestic millstone. Okay, this, this literally is a mule stone, three to four feet in diameter, weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds, and typically uh, in a mill you, you would have a flat rock service, surface, and then at this ground, this great mule stone, it's called a mule stone because it took a mule to push it, go in a circle. It would crush the husk, and the grain would come out. It's a mule stone. It had a hole in the middle of it. That's the imagery Jesus uses. He says, you cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it'd be better that you wear that for a necklace and be thrown in the Pacific Ocean. Loving Jesus. He loves his people. Don't mess with his people, says Jesus. Now, the Romans used to kill insurrectionists that way. So the disciples would have this image in their mind. Okay, if you want to commit anarchy against Rome, that became your necklace. Tossed over the side. So Jesus uses it as a picture of how heinous it is to cause one of these little ones of his to, to stumble. Okay, so how, 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 would, how is that better? 
Jesus said it'd be better. How is that better for a believer to die a premature, violent, swift death? That's what's in view. Okay? We have to back up a bit, and we have to think of this theologically. Because theologically, as we look at all of Scripture, we know with certainty that true believers are forgiven of all sins, and you'll never stand before God to be judged for even one sin. Because Jesus was punished for it all. Do we understand this? So, there's one of two things possible here. Uh, The first is that the person who regularly causes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to stumble may not be a a believer at all. So, therefore, this is a warning. They may not be of the faith because how you treat believers is a gauge for the reality of one's said faith. 1 John, we read from earlier. Look at verse 9, 1 John 2. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, this is a major warning for those who say, yeah, I know God. I'm saved by grace. I'm justified by faith alone. They have all their doctrine and order in their head. But actually, they can't stand believers. They don't like being around believers. Christians bother them. They have no concern or care whatsoever for misleading them. You're not a Christian. Or if you are, you better repent quickly if you fall into that category. Okay, so, so that, that, that's one thing uh, that, that, that this could cover here. So let's say it's a true believer. A true believer who, who causes stumbling in, in, in this life. Perhaps he does so or she does so so often and so severely that their life is prematurely ended in a violent way. I'm reminded of what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 3. The context there has to do with teachers, and, you know, he lays the foundation, whatever foundation, the foundation is Christ, we build upon it, and then uh, be careful what you build upon that foundation with, and he goes on to say this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, believer, you are that temple. So that is to say, uh, anyone who messes with Christ's church makes God his enemy, Heavy. Okay, now let's remember the context. Okay, now all that being said, it's applicable. So uh, remember the context. In the context, this comes on the heels of verses 38 to 41, where John, on behalf of the 12, is, is harboring a, a, a spirit of superiority, right? We told that guy to stop casting out demons in your name, right? Um, and they're hindering that guy from, from serving Jesus, Remember, they want to cut him off. To to make him stop, the Greek word means to cut him off. When you hinder a young one who loves the Lord and wants to serve, and you hinder them from serving, that can be very discouraging. It can crush you. Now, granted, some brand new believer wants to preach. He's not ready to preach, and he needs to be counseled that he, he needs to serve in ministry and learn and be trained in how to preach. Correct? 
So let's not misapply this. Now, there's a danger here in causing one like this to stumble, and, and, and it's in this way. Okay, so I'm taking a little liberty here. But let's say you, with this spirit of superiority, stop this guy from doing that, and you bring him into your circle, and you begin to pound him with that spirit of superiority. And now you have this little prideful new convert, part of your camp. That's one way this could happen. Example, a guy comes into a church like this. All seems well, but he has an agenda. And perhaps he doesn't have an agenda right away, but later on, he tries an agenda in his mind, and he begins to sour the minds of others against that church causing that younger believer, that less informed believer, to adopt this prideful spirit, and he has caused this younger one to stumble. That happens. That's dangerous. Or you can begin to to pull new believers into a, a critical circle. You know, I'm on team Puritan. I'm on team hymnody. I'm on team liturgical worship only. And then we start to define ourselves by what we're not. And then we create these little Pharisees. Causing one to stumble. That's applicable. Another way we could cause one to stumble um, is is, uh, pastors, leaders, in, in the church who lead their people into sin by teaching error. Now, there are in every generation those who do just that, who lead God's children astray. They lack discernment. They're easily swayed by every wind of doctrine. They're not schooled in theology yet. They don't know what the Word of God means by what it says. They're a new convert, and they come under some corrupt teacher, and they're caused to stumble. Dangerous. You know, there's some guys who who have provided great service to the church, many, many years of faithful teaching and preaching, and all of a sudden they go off on some tangent, and they adopt some strange doctrine, and now he's causing all kinds of people to stumble. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were chucked into the sea. That's how it would be better. He would die a quick and violent death, but he's not going to go to hell. I knew a guy who was a believer when I wasn't. It was obvious he was a believer, to me anyway, by his life. Years went by, I didn't see the fella, and the Lord saved me. And I ran into him. I was so excited as a new believer to run up to him and say, Brother, I'm saved, man. He wasn't that excited. He's like, oh, great. This is a guy who came knocking on my door when I visited his church one year. Did a follow-up. Zealous. A few years later, once I was a Christian, he was slipping and sliding. 
I ran into him at a gas station. I said, hey, where are you going? And he's, he's going over to Susser Susser Church because there's a lot of hot babes over there. Okay? Slipping, slipping, sliding. He calls me up out of the blue one day. Johnny, my brother's caught up in a cult, and I know you know the word very well. Can you give me some verses to pass on to him? I said, Billy, you're the guy that used to know all the scriptures, man. Now, prior to that phone call, he had been in a major traffic accident. He had been in a desert riding accident. He was locked, uh, wrapped up in the hospital a couple times. So I had that information in my mind. I said, brother, this phone call has more to do with you than it does your brother. And, and I just want to say, bro, you need to repent. You need to come back into the fold. You need to repent. And he goes, dude, this is what he said. Dude, I got to go. And he clicked. Two weeks later, I get a phone call, dead. In the desert, partying up, head-on collision on his three-wheeler with a doom buggy. I believe he was a believer. Could this be? Could this be? That severe, violent death of a, better, that it, of a believer that it would be better? Perhaps. You'd be better off to have one of those tied around your neck and to be chucked in the Pacific Ocean than to cause another one of these little ones of mine to stumble or to cause them to fall into or be drawn into a trap. It'd be better for you that this happens to you. Heavy. Another way that we can cause a fellow believer to stumble is to not be conscious of our Christian liberty around others whose consciences are bound in a particular area. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul covers this, and he talks about the charity we must show to those Christians who still have a weak conscience, weak believers. For instance, in that day, um, if you were a, a new believer in Christ and you came out of Judaism, you would all might still be caught up in what we can and can't eat. <laughs> okay? And Paul's saying, look, man, if, you're, if, if you have freedom in Christ, you know all foods have been deemed clean. You know that. I said that, says Jesus. But if this one's bound by his conscience not to eat, say, um, lobster, you know you're free in Christ to do that. But if the brother comes around, you, you don't have to exercise your Christian liberty in front of them as you dip lobster in the butter and go, mm, look at that, brother. Come on, try some." Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, um, in Paul's day, there was no shortage of pagan temples. And in those pagan temples, they would offer up animal sacrifices to false gods, but those temples also served as butcher shops and dining halls. Paul's saying, look, if, you, if, if you're free, in, you know that those false gods are nothing, and you're free in Christ to know that whether or not that, that ammo was offered up to some false god in the morning, uh, I'm going to the butcher shop and get a good deal on it. I'm free to eat that meat, and I will eat that meat. Medium rare, thank you very much. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven, 
and on earth, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. That is, there are many false gods. Of course there are. Yet for us, there's one God, the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist, one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. See, this sticks in their head. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. See, they have a weak conscience. They don't have freedom and Christian liberty like you do. So be careful, he says. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. See the idea? Christian liberty, flaunting it, in other words, flaunting it in front, of the, in front of those who have a weak conscience, you can cause one to stumble. You know, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, your freedom to eat and your freedom to drink wine and eat certain foods, let that be between you and the Lord. Don't cause your brother to stumble. All right. So, to one degree or another, uh, Jesus has made, made each believer accountable to one another. So there's the warning there, okay? Now, um, Jesus transitions from the peril um, of causing a fellow believer to stumble uh, to this, the second point, uh, the the eternal danger of pampering our own sin. This teaching of our Lord, it's it's been referred to as radical discipleship. Radical. Not like we use it. It's radical, dude. It's something that's so extreme and so out there. But radical, at its root, no pun intended here, means to the root. Means to the root. It comes from the Latin word radix. So here, when we speak about radical discipleship, we're speaking about radical change. We, we mean a comprehensive, total kind of, of change. And it goes down deep to the root. Of something. So whenever you address the root of a plant or the root of an issue or the cause of a problem, a problem, you, you inevitably change the whole thing. If you cut the root of a plant, the plant dies. You cut off a branch of a tree, it will probably still live. Mark was at my house and he told me I, you need to cut that branch. Your, your tree's all deformed. Cut the branch and it'll fill out. And lo and behold, it's filling out. Thank you very much. <laughs> but the root's still there. You cut the root to get to the problem. Getting down to what causes the problem, getting down to the source. That's where the life is. It's in the root. So notice then a, the series of evaluations Jesus makes beginning of verse forty. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Obviously, the Lord's not calling us to literally cut off our hands and feet. Amen? Some people have applied, early church people did that. They'd emasculate themselves. They'd cut stuff off. If we did that, we'd all be limping in here with no hands, <laughs> groping for our chair blind. If we literally applied this. <laughs> Jesus is not calling for physical mutilation. Okay? Children, amen? Very important. Back in chapter 7, what did Jesus say? There's nothing outside the man that can defile him. Pharisees came. You know, they're not washing their hands properly before they eat. And it had nothing to do with germs. It had everything to do with ceremony. Let the water pour over their hands, drip off. They'd lift it up and it dripped down their arms. They put on this big show. It was all the traditions of men. And they said to Jesus, "Why why do your disciples not wash before they eat? Jesus said, let me tell you something. It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man because what goes into a man goes in not to his heart but his stomach and it is eliminated from there. Man's problem is what comes from out of him, from out of his heart. That's the problem. That's what he says because from within it, from out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. You you can't do anything to fix the problem by cutting off your hand or your foot or plucking out your eye. That won't fix the problem because the problem's in here, says the Lord. You see, besetting sins, beloved, that, that bring destruction to our souls and devastation to our lives come in many forms it could be social ties jesus said if it causes you to sin, cut it off that social tie whatever it is uh destructive habits cut it off certain company we keep cut them off cast it away get out of their presence if you're prone to gossip refrain from speaking privately to certain people cut it off Getting rid of your computer may be the right course of action for those who struggle with looking at pornography on the internet. Clip the cord, throw it in the trash. That's what he means. Do whatever it takes, Jesus is saying, to flee sin and temptation. If going to places, you go to places that you frequent and you end up face down, don't go there anymore. (laughs) <laughs> or, or you go into those uh, groups, that community of people, and you're always led down the wrong path, don't associate with them anymore. Don't cut your hand off. <laughs> because we're made in his image. And we would be destroying the image of God. Amen. So th- th- these verses are a reminder of the seriousness and the seriousness and the consequence of sins. That's what this is. You can't corral a charging horse. That horse has to be what? Broken. 
You don't hop up on his back. You'll, you'll land in his dung if you do. You will. See, we're talking about deliverance from hell here. Notice, it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire, to be thrown into hell, verse 47, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The word for hell here is Gehenna. That's the word Gehenna. The term refers not to just the place of the dead like Hades. Hades means you went to the place of the dead. Gehenna here has to do with the lake of fire. That's why verse 43 describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire. And in verse 48, it goes on to say, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the root of Gehenna comes from the valley of Hinnom. A southwest steep ravine of Jerusalem. It's a place where two evil kings... Ahaz and Manasseh used to offer up human sacrifices. The Jews participated at that time in the unthinkable practice of sacrificing babies to the false god Molech. This statue with its arms out, burning a flame, red hot. They would set their children in that decrepit thing. Modern day form of abortion, if you will, I suppose. It's also called the Valley of Topath. And from that Hebrew word, we, get, we, we see the word drum. And historians tell us that they used to beat the drum there constantly, continuously, to, to drown out the crying voices of the babies. A good king comes along in 2 Kings 23, King Josiah. He puts an end to it all. And he turns the place into a garbage dump where refuse is dumped, where rotting food is dumped. And it, can, it piles up, so you would have to burn it. And the, it, the fire burned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it, draw, it drew or produced some type of worm that could live within it and feed upon the filth where the worm does not die. That's the imagery that our Loving Jesus communicates. And it's imagery that's derived from the very last verse of the glorious book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24, the very last verse, which is a very graphic picture of the future for all of God's enemies. So it's, a, it's the portrait of conscious, eternal suffering. You don't just go out of existence when you die. If you're not in Christ, you'll suffer forever, consciously, where the worm does not die. Graphic, isn't it? Where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus describes it elsewhere. So Jesus here, he's underlining for his disciples, beloved, a view of salvation that says at the heart of it all, the way you can be sure you're truly a child of God is not because you experienced something in the past. Although that may be very important. Don't bank on this one experience. For instance, in our day, we have these modern-day um, altar calls. And someone you'll meet, in no way 
reflects a Christian. And you, you're, you're talking about yourself that I'm in Christ, I'm a Christian. He goes, oh, man, I, I, I'm a Christian too. You are? How do you know? Well, I went forward at Billy Graham Crusade back in 1978. And his life has never changed. To be absolutely certain, to know, to be assured, is that your life will manifest ongoing, continual repentance. That is a sign of being saved from the unquenchable fire. You're in Christ. That's a sign. You're always cutting something off. We're always repenting. We're always confessing, always repenting, because we have the Spirit. How many times must your hand, how many times must your eye or your foot cause you to stumble to sin, into sin, before you're cast down into the eternal fires of hell? Is it 10 times? 100 times? 10,000 times? Let me help. Just one time. How many times did Adam have to sin against God before he was separated from God? Once. How many sins did Adam have to commit before he plummeted all the rest of humanity into the consequence of sin, which is death? One sin. Just one. Why? Because our sin is sin against an infinite God. He's infinite. Therefore, sin against infinite God necessitates infinite punishment. That equals hell. Sobering, amen? You'll be encouraged before you leave, don't worry. You don't jump over this stuff. This is part of what makes the gospel so glorious. So beautiful. Just one sin of humanity's representative head, Adam plummeted all the rest of humanity into sin. You're born with a sin nature because of one sin of one man. Adam. So the bad news is we've all robbed God of his glory by sinning. Anyone who thinks of themselves as, I'm good, I'm a good person, I can stand before God on my own merit, I don't have a need for a savior, you are self-righteously self-deceived. That's why Jesus said when he came, I didn't come for those who are well. In other words, those who think they're good enough, I came, I'm the physician who came for the sick. And the people who know they're sick and the people who know they need a savior, I'm the good physician. I've, called, I've come to call them to myself. Amen? Mark 2.17. Those who are sick and know it, those are the ones I came for. I didn't, call to come, to self, I didn't call, come to call the self-righteous to me. I came to call sinners to myself, people who know they're sinners, to save them from the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die from that. 
So, to conclude, hell shows us just how much God loves us. Hell shows us just how much God loves us. Hell is where God executes perfect justice and wrath. That's what hell is. The intensity of God's love is what caused him to send his son, Jesus, to this earth to bear upon himself the punishment of hell on the cross. That's why the doctrine of hell is loving. He sent his son to endure it. Hell on the cross. Now, if Jesus is not speaking of literal fire here, he's speaking of something much worse. You know, when we read about metaphors or or, or, uh, the Apostle John trying to explain what heaven is like, he uses the word like. It was like this. It was something like that. Can't totally explain it, but it was like this, that, and the other. Whatever is like, it's greater than John was able to describe. Whatever hell is, it's worse than Jesus describes it. So he uses fire, unending fire, and he also uses the metaphor of outer darkness. So you got fire, that's light, you have darkness, uh, what is it? It's intense suffering. That's what he bore on the cross. He's the infinite son of God, so he could therefore bear the infinite wrath of God because he himself is infinite. So you need not go there. You need not go to hell. Because he was there. In the place of any and all who believe. I think it was Spurgeon who said, any man or woman for them to go to hell would have to trample over the body and the cross of Jesus Christ to get there. That's how you go to hell. You trample over Christ who already bore it in your place. Amen. And praise him that he's not fair. Because if he were fair, we'd be there. He's not fair. He's just merciful. Let me close with this. If you're here this morning, you're you're a believer. Heavy text. Very sobering text. Okay, but if you're a believer, you love the Lord. You have faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. But you're constantly bombarded by the fear of hell, and that's all you ever see. I could have been sitting, sitting up here for the last hour preaching out of Romans, justification by faith alone. You'll never pay for one sin. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You'll never suffer. He bore it all. You stand rightly justified before God. When he sees you, he sees his son because you're in the son. But yet you'll still leave here and think about, I think I'm going to hell. If that's you, dear saint, instead of looking down at the ravages of hell, you need to look up, as John Bunyan said in Pilgrim's Progress, you need to look up and see the crown of gold that hangs above your head. 
because the fires of judgment of this hell have been quenched in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross that day. You see this? The fires of quell, the, the fires of hell have been quenched when Jesus was nailed to that cross. So rest in him. In his finished work. Amen. 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 Blessed be our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word. In, in, in help us by this very striking text to see more clearly the glories of Calvary that your wrath against us has been quenched and that the cross stands between your wrath and us who are guilty. Jesus took it all. It's unto him we owe. Thank you for your love, Father, in sending your Son on our behalf to, to bear hell upon himself and to quench its fires so that we will never taste hell at all. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.